I'm uh, very happy to be here tonight and be able to uh, share uh, what the Lord's laid on my heart. Um, what I would like to speak about tonight is the reason for your hope. And our anchor passage for this evening is 1 Peter 3.15. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer to every man who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and fear. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. Lord, just uh, be with me as, uh, as I present your word, Lord. Just let your words be heard and not mine. And uh, just help us to uh, just have a boldness for you and uh, just everything we do and say, just bring honor and glory to you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for sending your son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we just finished up the Defenders Conference this weekend. And for those that were unable to attend, uh, you really did miss a blessing. Uh, but the central theme for that conference is rooted in this verse, particularly the give an answer, or in some translations, give a defense for the reason for your hope. So it's very important for us as believers to be able to intelligently explain what we believe, why we believe it, and uh, in, in a way that doesn't come across as arrogant or boastful or even defensive. I know that defending your faith without being defensive sounds a little contradictory, uh, but that's where the meekness and fear part comes in. Uh, Brother Rich and the other speakers did a, an awesome job this weekend equipping us to do that. Uh, but this evening, I would like to focus on another section of this passage, and that is the reason for the hope. This, this verse calls for us to examine ourselves. If we are always to be ready and we're always to be prepared to give an answer, then we should anticipate that question. When that time comes to answer, what will our reason for that hope be? Now understand that there's a right answer here. Okay? When Peter says the reason for the hope, he's not speaking in vague uh, generalities. He's speaking to, to several groups, uh, several believer, groups of believers throughout Galatia and Asia and the surrounding areas, and they're dealing with real persecution, real suffering, real trials. And in this passage, he's telling them that suffering for good is better than suffering for wrong. But then he follows that up with reminding them about how Christ suffered for them and suffered for us, for our sakes. So when Peter says a reason for your hope or the hope, he already has a specific answer in mind. So we're going to circle back around to that here in a bit. But for now, I'd like to look at a few possible responses if you were asked for the reason of your hope. Now, I'm not saying these are the proper responses. I just want to run through some real responses that I have heard, that I've talked to, that I've read about, uh, that even the scriptures tell us about. Maybe one of these responses is your response. I know that throughout my life, some of these responses have been mine at times. So I want to take you through these, and I promise we'll circle back around to the proper response, the one that Peter is referring to. Uh, but for this exercise, I want to focus in particularly on the hope. If I'm going to give a reason for my hope, then I should be able to, if I'm going to be able to defend my hope, I best know what that hope is and more importantly, where it comes from. So we're going to start off with fairy tale hope. Fairy tale hope. So we all love fairy tales, right? What's the happiest place on earth? Disney World, right? 
<laughs> supposedly. Um, if you've been there, maybe you can debate that, but either way, uh, Disney is supposedly the happiest place on earth, but Disney is a multi-billion dollar industry built on fairy tales. Okay, in fairy tales, there's a Prince Charming, there's a princess, a damsel in distress, there's a villain that always get what, gets what they deserve. Everything always works out. Everything's perfect on the outside, at least. And in fairy tales, there's always a happy ending. How many of us have a fairy tale hope? Consider this in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed these things about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I tithe of all that I earn. Now let's stop there for just a moment. This man sees his brother in the same church house as he's in, he stands and loudly proclaims his perfect life and how grateful he is to not be like this man sitting right next to him, this tax collector, this lesser of a human being. Now, none of us would ever do that, right? We'd never be like that. But how many times have we caught ourselves, if we're being honest, thinking, at least I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like so-and-so, right? So Jesus says in Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and greed. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside then may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside, you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I'll admit, I don't like to do dishes. Anyone like to do dishes? No, no. So dishes, doing dishes is awful. And there have been occasions where I've let those dishes sit for a couple days, right? And you get that real shocking whiff as you walk by the kitchen sink. It happens, okay? Maybe somebody left a little bit of cereal milk in that, uh, in that bowl or something like that. But what if I went to work on these dishes, got the outside super clean, put them in the, in the cover, whatever, the cabinet, and then the next time someone came over, I served them with those dishes. How would you like to be that person? Right? No, that's what Jesus is saying here. He put, we put on this sparkly, clean, fairy tale exterior so everyone sees us and thinks, hey, they got it all together. They got this all figured out. But on the inside, we're just as filthy and rotten and as spoiled as we can be. Jesus continues in Luke 18 and says, But the tax collector, standing at a distance, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but struck his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Is this your hope? The fairy tale hope. 
Next, we have a hand-me-down hope. Who, ha- who here is a younger sibling? They have an older sibling of the same gender. Okay, how many times did you get their hand-me-down clothes? Right? You got their hand-me-down clothes. The second go-round, they were broken in in all the wrong places. Uh, try as you may, you were never able to get them fit to fit like new clothes, like clothes that were intended for you. So let's hop over to John 4 and consider a story that we're very familiar with, the woman at the well. So Jesus is sitting at the well in Samaria, a place where Jews didn't hang out. And he talks to a Samaritan woman that comes there to uh, get some water, a person that Jews didn't talk to. Jesus had just told her he was the living water, and he had called out her sin. This woman is confronted with the reality of Jesus and who he was, And this is how she responds. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you all say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody about Jesus and they immediately deflect it to their family relationship, their religious history, instead of addressing their own? My grandpa was a Baptist preacher. I always went to church with him when I was little. But what is your relationship like with Jesus? My whole family is Catholic. I guess I'm Catholic too. No, what is your relationship with Jesus? I grew up in a Christian home. We prayed together and have devotionals every morning. No, you and Jesus, where are y'all at? These are conversations that I've had with people, and these are the responses that I've received when I ask, what is your relationship like with Jesus? Jesus goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 21, says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Yet the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. Have you heard this? I know about Jesus. I'm just waiting to see what his will for me is in my life. Just waiting. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus said, woman, I'm right here in front of your face, and you want to talk about what your fathers say. Your parents' hope will not save you. Your family's hope will not save you. Your pastor's hope will not save you. You do not inherit Christ. You receive an inheritance through him if you are his child. Your salvation cannot be a hand-me-down. Your salvation was purchased at an incredible price. It's a free gift of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're all familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. It is a gift of God. No one else can take the credit. No one else can afford the price. If your hope is your hope, a hand-me-down, based on something that somebody else believes, based on something a family member has experienced, is your hope a hand-me-down? 
Next one we'll talk about custom built hope. Now custom built sounds pretty cool, right? We love custom built homes. We love custom built motorcycles if you're into that kind of thing. How many of you have been to this little store called Build-A-Bear? Have you heard of Build-A-Bear? A few of you. Okay, my kids loved build, maybe love present tense for some of them, uh, Build-A-Bear. So and if you're not familiar with this store, I'll kind of give you a little breakdown of how it works. You go in and you choose a shell of, of an animal, right? You choose a heart, whether you want the heart to beat, whether you want to put something in their paw that makes a noise, whatever. They stuff it to your desired fluffiness. And then you can pick clothes and cars and shoes and a lightsaber if it's a Star Wars Build-A-Bear. Like pretty much anything you can imagine that a bear would want, you can give it to them. And then you walk out of the store with an $80 teddy bear. Okay? But it's the perfect teddy bear. It's the exact teddy bear that you wanted, that they wanted, that the kids wanted until the next time that you get to the store. And then it's a different story. How many of us treat God like this? Or more specifically, how many of us, even as believers, treat the word like this? Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25, it says, Now a lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, but who is your neighbor? Jesus answered, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped down, stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest came down that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, looked at him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, I will repay you whatever else you spend when I return. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? He said the one who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, most of us are familiar with this story, but the problem is we tend to identify with the Samaritan. Of course we would help someone that's been beaten up and on the side of the road, right? But the, most of the time, we aren't the good Samaritan in this story. We're the priest, we're the Levite. But keep in mind, Jesus didn't tell this story to give us warm fuzzies about how the good things that the Good Samaritan did, he told it to confront us with our tendency to pick and choose who our neighbor is, to decide who we think needs our help based on our comfort level, to decide who needs to hear the gospel, the greatest help that we could ever offer based on our convenience. See, we want the neighbor that's easy to help. We want to customize that love your neighbor commandment. So how, how about this? Have you ever heard someone say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian? Now that sounds like a logical statement, especially for someone who doesn't go to church. 
But let's break this down for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but let us exhort one another, especially as you see the day approaching. So can we agree that Hebrews chapter 10 verses 25 is a scripture? Can we agree that this is an instruction in righteousness, a command, if you will? When John 14, 15, it says, If you love me, Jesus speaking, keep my commandments. By definition, a Christian should be someone who loves Christ, right? So if I'm a Christian, I love Christ. If I love Christ, I will keep his commandments. His word tells me that all scripture is from God and profitable for instruction in righteousness. And one of these instructions is to go to church. Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? I'll put it this way. Going to church does not make you a Christian, but Christians go to church. I say all this to say, do you pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you like and that you want to apply to your life? Parts that are more convenient than others, parts that maybe don't make the world raise an eyebrow at you. Have you reduced the Word of God to a collection of inspirational quotes? Don't deceive yourself. John, excuse me, James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of breaking the whole law. Is your hope custom built? One last scenario before we get to the circle back around and get to what Peter was really talking about. Maybe you know someone that when you ask the reason for their hope, they don't have an answer. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are hopeless. Luke tells us of a truly hopeless man in Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 32. It says, Two different men who were criminals also were led with him to be killed. When they came to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the left and one, one on the right, one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. The people stood around watching. But the rulers with them scoffed, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is in Christ, if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. I'm going to skip down to verse 39. One of the criminals who were who also, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, seeing you are under the same sentence? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here Luke shows us a sharp contrast between the hopeful and the hopeless. The response from the second thief reminds me of the response of the prodigal son. Both felt unworthy. Both felt like they had messed up so bad that it was impossible for them to return home, to return to their father. We've talked about that through the last several weeks with the teenagers. and That's one of the things uh, that we really drove home is that 
the prodigal son, he, I, just, I just need to come home and be a servant. I'm not worthy to come home and, and remain a son. That's how he felt. The thief felt the same way. He had no expectation of eternity in paradise, but he saw the hope that was right in front of him. Both the prodigal son and the thief were welcomed home. The response from the first thief was one of complete hopelessness. His salvation, his redemption, his pardon, his only hope was right there in front of him, and he couldn't see past his sin to recognize him. Which thief are you, the hopeless or the hopeful? As promised, here we are. We've discussed many of the responses that uh, have been given for a reason of our hope. None of them correct the correct response, but a response nonetheless. What was Peter really talking about when he said a reason for the hope that is in you? This is the exciting part. To answer this, we need to back up a bit to the beginning of Peter's letter. And we'll start in verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that does not fade away, kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This hope that Peter is talking about is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the reason for that hope, our God sent his only son to take on a burden of sin, pay a debt that we owed and we could not pay. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says, But he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And through his resurrection, he conquered death, giving us access. Brother Rich talked about this last week. He gave us access to grace, to reconciliation with our creator. In Romans 5.2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into grace in which we stand. And so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Peter goes on to say, back in uh, 1, Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, if for a little while, you have had to suffer various trials, in order that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tried by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, and whom though you do not see him now, you believe and you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving as the result of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, I'm usually not a big fan of run-on sentences, but I can tell you for sure this is a run-on sentence I can get behind. In this you greatly rejoice, receiving as a result of your faith the salvation of your souls. If I ask you today, 
What is the reason for the hope that is in you? What would you say? Would you say, I'm a good person, I have a great family, I have a great job, I have great kids, I try to be nice to people, I donate to charity, I've never really been in trouble, I pay my taxes, I think I'm all right. Let me tell you your good dudes and your good deeds and your I got it all figured out exterior, your happy ending, your fairy tale will not save you. If your hope is in a fairy tale, then you can wave goodbye to the happy ending. Or would you give me a mini dissertation about your family history and how you were born into the church and every third relative is a missionary or a pastor or a preacher? Your great uncle's cousin can't save you. Your grandpa, the pastor, can't save you. Your mama can't save you no matter how badly she wants to. Your hand-me-down hope just won't cut it. Would you tell me, you know, I just can't get on board with everything in the Bible. There's so many things that just seem unfair or some things just outright mean. Some things are obviously outdated. I really just think it's more of a good book with some life lesson type stories. Well, inspirational stories end after they are told, but the word of God is forever. Understand that the Bible wasn't written for your pleasure or to give you warm fuzzies. The Word of God was written to help you understand just how much your Creator loves you. Just how much He was willing to sacrifice to fix what you messed up, what I messed up. The Word of God was written so we could come to the knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ. If I ask you today, what is the reason for the hope that is in you, would you say, what hope? All I know is I live in an awful, terrible world and only awful, terrible things ever happen to me. What kind of hope could I possibly have or ever, of ever being truly happy or truly loved? All I really know is pain. Have you been trying to figure out what this hope thing is that everybody else is talking about? When Jesus was on this earth, he actually had a conversation with someone who was searching for that hope. And we're pretty familiar with this conversation, at least part of it. The man's name was Nicodemus. He was a smart, successful leader in the religious community. We talked about a fairy tale hope. He could have given that reason as the hope that was within him. We talk about a hand-me-down hope. He could have given that reason for the hope that was in him. As much as he knew about Scripture, he could have given a custom-built reason for the hope that was in him. But you see, Nicodemus was actually hopeless. Why else would he be searching in the night for answers that he wasn't able to find? In this conversation, before Nicodemus even asked the question, Jesus tells him how to find this hope he is searching for. Again, just like the woman at the well, just like the thief on the cross, hope was right in front of him. Then Jesus tells him exactly what he needed to hear. In verse 16, familiar with this one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who Ever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. A lot of times we stop there when we're reading that passage. And John 3.16 is amazing, but I want to go a couple verses further. 17 and 18 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I ask you today, what's the reason for your hope? There's only one reason that really matters. And his name's Jesus. Jesus. 